This is the What Now Podcast. Sometimes we as members of the church, we minimize or discourage the value of someone else's journey. There was a time where I wasn't back. There was a time where I wasn't good. And what I want people to take from that is this reality that you can talk to people about this. There are so many people around you who will show you that you are loved, even though this is something that is a part of your life. This is the What Now podcast, where we discuss the stigma that surrounds cultural norms in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in a respectful, open, and honest way in an effort to create more understanding, hope, and healing. Today, I will be talking with behavior coach Zach Spafford about his personal journey with pornography and how he overcame a 25-year habit. He shares important strategies on how to break the negative cycle and recognize our personal power as well as important advice for spouses, parents, and friends on how to help someone who is struggling with pornography in a way that leads to lasting change. Zach also shares tips on how to communicate effectively with our loved ones who struggle to create a positive outcome free from shame and guilt. Today, I am here with Zach Spafford, who coaches members of the church on how to stop unwanted behaviors. And today we will be focusing on pornography. So Zach, welcome. Hey. How's it going? We're so glad you're with us today. Thank you for taking the time. This is my pleasure and what a blessing it is to be able to talk about this. Well, this is an important topic to talk about. So I'd like to just invite you to share a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you went to school, your family, a little bit about you, just so listeners can get to know you a little bit better. Yeah, for sure. So I was born in Boise, Idaho, very much part of the Mormon reality. My parents are both members of the church. And from there, we lived in Utah and we lived in Germany and Alaska. And I got the blessing of being able to grow up kind of all over the world. My dad worked for the government. And from the time I was a little boy, I knew that that's what we were going to do. We were going to move to somewhere interesting pretty much all the time. Now I pretty much grown, almost grown, I'll say. I'll be 40 this year in a few days, in fact. And my wife and I, we have eight kids. We love homeschooling our kids. We just have been really quite blessed to be able to raise as many wonderful and perfectly interesting children, I'll call them. That's a good way of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. There's always joy in kids, but sometimes they're a challenge, right? That's the way it works. For sure. That's right. Okay. So, so let's jump in. So, you know, you've recently been quite open about your struggles with pornography and I would just want to invite you to see if you would mind sharing your personal journey with us. Yeah. When I was about eight years old, we lived in a little place called Dugway, Utah, which is, if you don't know where that is, it's beyond Tooele somewhere is basically what I remember. I've been back since I was a kid, but I was on a playground there on the Dugway Proving Ground. And I was just playing in one of those giant truck tires you used to see on playgrounds. They always smelled like cat pee, but for whatever reason, you know, they were interesting to kids. And I found a pornographic magazine. And from that moment on, I spent the next 25 or so years dealing with pornography use in my life. And, you know, I thought I was addicted. I struggled mightily both to be the young priesthood holder that I wanted to be get ready to go on my mission, become the missionary that I wanted to be. And then after I returned from my mission, become a good, faithful husband. And each step along the way, I found myself struggling with this habit that continued to hold my attention in very significant ways. I couldn't kick it. And at some point, in fact, I know exactly when it was, we had just had our fifth and sixth child, or we had twins. And my wife was struggling to maintain the house. And I was often going to 12-step meetings and counselors and meeting with the bishop. And she just 
stopped me and she said, listen, if this stuff is helping you, keep doing it. But I'm not seeing any progress and I don't think it's helping. And I really could use your help at home. <laughs> yeah, let's get real. Right. <laughs> Next kiss. She's like, if you're going to keep looking at pornography, whether you go to these meetings or not, I need you to come and help me fold some laundry. And it was just that moment where I took a step back and I said, oh, okay, what is it that's actually keeping me from becoming the person that I want to be. And I stopped going to 12-step meetings. In fact, that's not an uncommon reality for most people. There's some research by a Dr. Lance Dotis. He has a book called The Sober Truth. And he indicates in his research, he focused on A, but I think you could probably extrapolate across the broad spectrum of anonymous groups that got about a 5% chance of change, which is essentially the same chance of change that you have just doing it on your own. And so to understand that, to understand that, okay, there's not really a great chance of succeeding here, but there's some chance, you know, I recommend people, if it helps them, if it continues to help them, please go. I know that the community and the men in those meetings are earnest and they're kind and they want you to succeed as much as they want to succeed themselves. But I found for me personally, as I started on this journey and took a step back from the things that the 12 steps had taught me and the things that I had learned in counseling. And I started to look at my own brain and started to look at the whys and try to understand what was going on underneath. I found that I could create greater success by understanding what was going on inside. Okay. So a little introspection, little self-evaluation. Very much so. Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't just introspection and self-evaluation. It was an opportunity to experiment. I mean, my wife had said, you know, if this isn't helping, come home. And I was like, well, if it's not helping, then why am I still doing it? And I'm one of those people who has always tried to, I think of myself as someone who can figure things out. You know, <laughs> it's me and YouTube fixing the car. And my wife's like, how did you do that? And I'm like, well, I just figured it out, right? And it's the same thing with your brain. If you are willing to take the time and take the steps necessary and do the experimentation and not be afraid of it, you'll find out that you can do a whole heck of a lot. Okay. So you just took maybe like personal inventory over your life. Like, what am I going to control? What am I going to allow into my life? Just kind of, that was your aha moment. I'm going to come home and stop going to these meetings and help my family out. And what am I doing? Well, yeah, that, and what I found out later that I didn't know as I was doing it was that the techniques and the tools and the systems that I created and put into place were all available to me through coaching. All of the things that I have learned since I started coaching and since I found Jody Moore, who's another podcaster, are the vocabulary to the things that I was doing. And every step deeper I get into it, I see gospel principles and I see the truth and I see how I can now take control and take my agency back rather than be a victim of what used to be what I thought was an addiction, but really was just a habit that no longer served me. I like that phrasing, it no longer served you. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Well, yeah. So it's really interesting, right? I think we look at things like pornography use or excessive eating or video game use or excessive shopping, even being a workaholic, all of those things, we look at them and we go, those are automatically and definitely bad. But what we fail to see is that those are part of our journey and the things that we learn from those provide us with the answers to who we want to be and how we want to go forward and how we can bring ourselves closer to our Heavenly Father. And one of the things that I've been thinking about recently, and I don't know if you know who Al Caraway is, 
So I've been watching the things that she's put out in terms of Instagram. And I've been aware of her for a number of years, but I've kind of been noticing there's this interesting trend of people who are saying, you know, you're a terrible example to the young women of the church because you have all these tattoos and why should we look to you to be someone that they should be like? I think recently determined is that sometimes we as members of the church, we minimize or discourage the value of someone else's journey. We look at it and we say, well, if you're not already back to good, then what you're doing in your journey is not of value. And we say things like that to people in terms of, you know, the things that people are saying to Al Caraway. They're saying, you know, you can't believe your tattoos are what you're showing as someone who is trying to be an example of members of the church. And I think about that and I think that was her journey. And there's nothing in the gospel that says don't put tattoos on your body. But there is something in the gospel that says, love one another. And we miss that part in trying to be right. We miss that part in trying to tell people, well, these are the rules. And if you're not following the rules, then you're not doing it right. And I just look at that and I go, I really wish that we as a membership, as brothers and sisters could hear everyone's journey and be supportive of it. Well, it's interesting what you're saying about Al Caraway, because her past is visible on her body. Very much so. And the past of pornography is a very secretive, hidden thing. And a lot of people don't know about it. They don't want to talk about it. And there's a big stigma around it, too. So to come out and be very transparent about your past with pornography is so admirable. And it's how we help people, right? When we are transparent and we are, and you put it behind you, which is really incredible after having a 25 year habit. So what boundaries have you set for yourself to help you resist that urge to view it again? I mean, that's got to be something that might creep up every now and then. What boundaries do you set for yourself? And, and for those people who are listening right now, who are trying to get off of it and they need to create boundaries. I mean, your experience can really help a lot of people. So the first thing that I want to say there is there was a time where I wasn't back. There was a time where I wasn't good. And I want people to recognize that every person that I told, every single person who I said, hey, I've got this problem and who my wife would say, hey, Zach has this problem because she was actually quite a bit more vocal about it than I was. But our friends our church family, my family, they were all entirely supportive of us. There was not a single one who was like, you're no good. I don't want to be around you. You're a terrible human. (laughs) That's great. That's good to know. Yeah. And what I want people to take from that is this reality that you can talk to people about this and you can be vulnerable. I'm not saying like announce it over the pulpit, but I am saying, if you believe that'll help you feel free, but What I am saying is that there are so many people around you who will show you that you are loved, even though this is something that is a part of your life. And your question, you know, what are the boundaries that I set? What are the, what are the things that I do to resist this? You know, the first thing that I would tell you is choose who you want to be. You know, I think we forget that we have this thing called agency. Sometimes I think we think that there are these rules that we're supposed to follow. And I hear this in the church quite a bit in terms of faith crisis, where people are like, I just stopped wanting to do all of the things that I'm supposed to do. And when it comes to pornography, I often talk about this in terms of like, you know, you're a member of the church, you're a Mormon, you can't drink coffee, right? People say that to us all the time, especially if you don't live in Utah. And I think the most appropriate answer is I can, but I choose not to. And because what that means is that I am both saying I have the agency to do something that is totally available to me. And yet I'm fully comfortable declining the invitation. 
Because if you say something along the lines of, no, well, you're right because the word of wisdom says I can't, or the prophets say I can't, or my bishop says I can't, then you're abdicating your agency. You're saying, I don't have the capacity to choose this. I have to follow a rule book, which if we abdicate our agency, that was Satan's plan. <laughs> right. just, just in case you were wondering, <laughs> that was the other guy's plan. You're here on a different setup, right? And then there's this idea of resisting. And one of the things that I teach my clients is that it is not a battle. You are not going to war because there's one person that you cannot beat and that's you. So when it comes to the idea of resisting and keeping it at bay and fighting it off and really putting yourself in a position to where you have to struggle against this, that's not really an effective position to be in because you're only fighting one person. You're fighting you. You're never going to win that battle. But if instead you can take and you can say, I am going to allow the emotions that I'm feeling to exist while also choosing not to act on them in any way, right? So this is what I call that wildlife narration view of your brain. So there's a really great wildlife film. It's a short piece of film, but it is probably one of the most interesting and unique and powerful moments in all of wildlife film. There's this iguana and it's in the bed of this dry river and there's a snake approaching it. And there's a guy named Sir David Attenborough. He's a narrator for the BBC's wildlife films. If you've ever heard a BBC wildlife film, you've heard David Attenborough's voice. And he sits there and he starts to talk about what's happening, right? He's talking about the snake and he's talking about the iguana and each of their particular attributes. And then the snake touches the iguana and the iguana lights off down this dry riverbed. And you see this I mean, it's almost like you couldn't have written an, a Mission Impossible action film better than this. The iguana's tearing off down this dry riverbed. Snakes start popping out of every little crevice. One point, the iguana gets captured and balled up in two or three different snakes and escapes. And then it starts to, again, take off. And meanwhile, you hear David Attenborough say nothing. And you don't see any wildlife you know, filmers jumping in the middle to stop the action. And this iguana, I kid you not, it starts scaling a sheer rock wall. And there are snakes as though, like, as though it were written into a script. There are these snakes jumping up after the iguana. And the iguana gets to the top of this hill, this rock face. And all David Attenborough says is, a near miraculous escape. And this is one of those things that I teach my clients that I think we all should have a better grasp on is being able to watch what's happening in our brain without doing anything about it. Because those urges, they come and they go. Our thoughts, they come and they go. But our capacity to watch our brains and see what it's doing and understand why it's doing what it's doing. You know, imagine the iguana is you and the snake is that urge. And if you get in the middle of that thing and you fight with either one of them, you're going to lose. You're going to get bit. You're going to not be able to walk away from that scene. But if you just sit there and you observe and you pay attention and you try to understand why this urge exists and why your brain wants to do it and you choose to do nothing, you're going to have a much greater capacity, one, to choose what you want, and two, that urge is eventually going to dissipate. It's going to go away eventually because all of our urges, urges are just emotions driving us intensely to do something that feels better. And if we just sit there and we choose to do nothing, that urge will go away eventually. All urges do. I like how you're talking about taking back your agency, you know, that everything we do, we're letting ourselves do. 
right? I mean, if we decide we want a candy bar, we have to get in our car and drive to the 7-Eleven and get out and get the candy bar, wait in line, pay for it. You know, those are all steps to getting something we're craving or we want, but every one of those steps we're choosing to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I regularly say to my clients, pornography never shows up in your living room and says, hi, I'm naked and you're going to watch me, right? There are all sorts of places along the path where you consent to its existence in your life. And once you recognize that and you stop saying things like, I'm powerless against my addiction, I, hi, my name is Zach and I'm an addict, you begin to see not only is this a choice, but it's a choice you can actually choose not to do. And for a lot of my clients and for me in particular, so for me especially, my first step from I can't stop looking at pornography, which is what I believed for so many years, to reassert my agency was, I can look at pornography if I want to, and I'm going to look to today. I know that sounds counterintuitive. I know some people are out there going, well, you're never supposed to look at pornography. Okay, that might be true, but that doesn't make it so that I'm not making that choice. That rule has yet to make anybody not choose pornography. What does make people not choose pornography is their desire to be the person that they want to be without pornography. And until you can assert that desire through your agency, you're not going to succeed. You're just going to feel stuck and trapped. Well, you were talking about an addict and that's such a negative term. So I think like an addict versus someone who has a habit, you can break habits all day long, right? Absolutely. But when you're labeled as an addict, it's just such a negative connotation. I feel like that's more of what Satan wants us saying. We're addicts, which means we can't change. We have no control. We have no agency. Habit sounds like, okay, I can break it. I have control. I have agency and I can apply it if I want to. It's just such a more positive term, habit versus addict. You know, I have a pornography habit or I have a pornography addiction. It just sounds different. Do you want to talk about that for a sec? I have often talked to people who come to me. Well, I mean, so many of my clients feel this way. I actually had a very poignant conversation with someone who he was adamant that he was an addict. Like that was his identity in a lot of ways. He said, oh, so you don't think I could be an addict? And I said, I, you know, maybe you are, maybe you're not. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I can't diagnose that. But let's go down that path for a second. So first thing is, does that thought help you be the person you want to be, right? If I'm addicted, then in a lot of ways, I'm trapped in a cycle of behavior that I don't have any control over. That's essentially what we kind of define addiction as. And then I often ask people this question. I say, if you were sitting there in your bedroom and someone walked in on you, what would you do? And invariably, they say, I would stop viewing pornography. I'd hide it. And that to me tells me that it's not that you can't stop looking at pornography. It's that you haven't yet chosen to stop looking at pornography. And I usually put that up against a story from my own mission. So I served a mission in Italy. My mission president is a wonderful man and I I love him. And I was grateful that I was able to serve under his tutelage because he's taught me so much. One of the conversations that he and I had was about this woman who was sitting on the train. I was riding the train in Naples, Italy. And this woman was sitting there in front of me in the stairwell of the train. She wasn't sitting in a seat. She was sitting in the stairwell that you would enter the train. And she looks at me and I look at her and we, we make eye contact and we know, I know she's there. She knows I'm there. And then she starts to shoot up heroin right in front of me. And that to me gives an indication of a totally different set of issues. That to me was an indicator that 
this person didn't care whether I knew she was using heroin. Whereas I think most people who are using pornography or viewing pornography, they do care. They care who knows, and they care why people might have this information. And so to me, that indicates that this is more a matter of shame and what we believe about it than it is about the addictive nature of the particular issue. Well, let's talk about the whole shame thing. Cause you know, when someone has a pornography habit, it can be hard for them to have self-confidence because so much of their viewing is done in secret, allowing shame and guilt to kind of steal their self-worth. So what are some strategies for rebuilding their self-confidence when they feel like they're kind of in that low? I define self-confidence as three essential characteristics. One is the ability to trust yourself. So being able to say you'll do something and do it, being able to feel any feeling and know that you will be able to survive, right? So knowing that you will be able to get through that feeling at some point, sadness, loneliness, frustration, mourning, whatever that might be. And then the third characteristic is the capacity to believe what you want to believe about yourself. And this is a really interesting one. I'll take the first two real quickly, but then we'll take a little bit of time on that third one, which is when I say I'm going to stop being a pornography user and then I don't do that, that totally cuts at my capacity to believe that I will do what I say I will. Capacity to do what you say you will is a huge component of self-confidence because it means you can trust yourself. And in trusting yourself, you often have a higher capacity to trust others around you. And when we say, I'm going to stop and we don't, we erode that trust and others see it and they say, well, why didn't you? And that also erodes your self-confidence. And so being able to actually stop because you say you will, that's a huge blessing. And it will also create compounding dividends in the form of self-confidence. And then knowing that you can feel any feeling and you'll survive, there's not a feeling out there that's going to kill you, right? If you allow it to exist and you allow it to you know, go all the way through its cycle of existence, you know, feelings are, it's essentially a chemical reaction within your brain that drives sensations within your body. That's what a feeling is. I mean, that breaks it down to its really, really boring technical parts, right? But the reality is, is that when you feel sad, sad doesn't kill you. It's what you choose to do with sad. Do you try to suppress it and fight it off and put yourself in a position to where you're frustrated and sad and compound it by doing things like using pornography. So now not only are you sad and frustrated, but then you're also, you're morally bankrupt and people are upset with you and you're jeopardizing your moral standing, right? Or you could just feel sad and feel it. Usually most feelings go away within about 10 minutes. So if you just sit there and you feel sad, kind of like that watcher of the brain and you watch the iguana and the snake and you just let them do their thing, whatever's going to happen eventually is going to happen right? It's eventually just going to dissipate. And if you allow that to exist, you're going to be much more capable of being happy, by the way, right? So life is 50-50 and we know this as opposition in all things, right? And so often I talk to my clients and they say things like, I should be happy all the time. You know, I live in a perfect life and I have a perfect marriage and I have all of these things and I live in America and I have enough money and my life is perfect. So why am I not happy? And Because we're part- human. Because <laughs> <laughs> right, we're people and people aren't always happy, right? And we think, well, you know, 2 Nephi 2.25, Adam fell that men might be and men are them. They might have joy. And we think we should always have joy if that's what our purpose is. But you got to go like 14 verses earlier and recognize that joy doesn't exist without sorrow. And you have to be willing to feel both of those to their fullest to enjoy the happy parts. 
the joyous or, part. Or you'd even identify what real joy feels like. If you've never had heartache, you've never had the opposite, you never really know what true joy feels like, right? So- oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And then finally, to believe what you want to believe about yourself. Now, that's not arrogance, right? It's not, I'm better than this person because. It's this capacity to choose to believe in what you want to believe about yourself. So you never met a doctor who didn't believe they could be a doctor. Like nobody just shows up and it's like, oh, I'm a doctor now. You start to believe that. You begin by believing, oh, I could be a doctor. And so I'm going to start by going to college. And then, oh, I've completed college. I think I could still be a doctor. So I take the MCAT oh, I could still be a doctor because my MCAT went well. So maybe I'll fly to medical school. All of those steps, they help you understand that you are a doctor eventually, but believing that you could be a doctor from the very beginning was the thing that catalyzed that movement. It wasn't, I'm a doctor, ergo, I exist. It was, I believe that I could do something. I could be this. And so I'm going to start down that path. And when it comes to pornography use, that same principle comes into play. It's actually a technical principle. It's called confirmation bias. We believe the things that we tend to think most often. And those things that we think most often, we seek to prove ourselves right by seeking for evidence of those things in our lives. So if you're you know, constantly affirming, I'm powerless against my addiction, and hi, my name is Zach and I'm an addict, then you're going to continue to look for evidence of that, which is going to create actions that prove you right. It's so true. The mind is so powerful. It's so powerful. We will just believe what we think about. I mean, that's why the scriptures also warn us to be careful of our thoughts. Our thoughts become our actions, right? Or what we say or what we do. It all kind of comes from our thought process. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. So my dad's a mortician. And as we you know, moved around the world and he worked for the government as a mortician, oftentimes I would be confronted with people who were sad because someone had died. And that always was a little bit strange to me because to me, when someone dies, that was a moment for my family that we were able to get paid, right? Like that was what my dad did. And if we didn't have people dying, then not that I was happy that that person had died, but that it wasn't as sad to me as it might've been to someone else. And what I take to, from that is our thoughts are the thing that create our emotions and our actions. And if we're not careful about them, just like you said, we could create emotions and actions that aren't the ones that are going to help us be the best version of ourselves. And to kind of go back to what you were saying before, it doesn't serve you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And if it doesn't serve you, why do it? Right. If, If you believe I'm an addict. So go back to my client who's like, no, I'm an addict. I'm addicted to pornography and sex. And if that's what you want to believe, that's totally fine. But what if that's not true? only because it doesn't serve you. I have a really powerful quote to kind of go along with that, the empowerment piece of that. Elder Holland had this incredible talk and he says, you can change anything you want to change and you can do it very fast. It takes exactly as long to repent as it takes you to say, I'll change and mean it. Of course, there will be problems to work out, restitutions to make. You may well spend, indeed, you had better spend the rest of your life proving your repentance by its permanence. But change, growth, renewal, repentance can come for you as instantaneously as it did for Alma and the sons of Mosiah. That is empowerment. You decide what you want and mean it, and he will back you up. A bishop in Provo, Utah, shared that with me, and he had shared it with a man that came to him who had had some addiction issues, pornography habit. 
And he had really struggled for a long time, had a bunch of kids and a family. And my friend read him that quote. And he walked out of there a changed man. The fact that he could mentally shift that day, he was going to mean it and he was going to do it. And he did. So I love that we're taking our agency back. Well, and I talk about this in oftentimes in terms of repentance. I think we think of repentance as like this laundry list of tasks that we have to complete before, quote unquote, forgiven. But repentance, if you look at its Greek root and its Latin roots, it basically means to have new thoughts. And why would you want to have new thoughts? And I think this is interesting because for so many years of my life, I was like, the prophet and the apostle have asked me to repent daily. And I'm like, I didn't punch anybody today. So what did I do wrong that I have to repent of? And they're not talking about that. They're talking about believing things that more closely align you with your heavenly father. And this is what Elder Holland is talking about here. He's saying, if you can just believe the thing that your heavenly father believes about this thing in your life, you can leave it. You can change instantaneously because that thing can both be perfectly true and true for you in your life. And I think for so many of us, we think, oh, I'm an addict and I'm stuck. And then our spouses, they try to hold us to account for that. They try to you know, exact some measure of justice for them in that process. I want to acknowledge that that's a difficult subject for a lot of spouses because they feel so painfully and deeply hurt by this behavior. But the truth of the matter is, is that the moment that you have the capacity to believe something else, for instance... I can look at pornography if I choose to, but I choose not to. That is the moment at which you have repented. And then the other things come. The other items come. The confession, the conversation with your spouse, as much remuneration as you can possibly provide, the stopping of the behavior, all of that comes as a secondary component of the actual change mentally. I love that you're kind of segueing into the spouse situation. What advice would you give to spouses and loved ones who are married or involved with someone who struggles with pornography? Yeah, I would just start by saying you're not alone. And the truth of the matter is, is that your husband is not doing well. I'm going to say husband, but it's not always husbands. It's wives as well. But your spouse is not doing this because they want to injure you. And if you want them to succeed, which I know you do want them to succeed, you want them to stop doing this behavior, I would have you encourage them. And that's not to say that you should not take care of your own emotional needs. And that's not to say that you shouldn't put up your own boundaries. And that's not to say that you should allow things that you don't want to allow in your life. But it is to say, if you can step outside of yourself for just one moment and recognize that their behavior is not about you, it's about them. Their behavior is not about you, it's about how the viewer of pornography is feeling and trying to cope with their own feelings. Then I hope that you can see some path towards empathy and encouragement and maybe even love for that other person. Because I think when you reflect on how you want to show up in that moment, it's the same way that you would want your spouse to show up in the moments where you're struggling. And my wife and I, we've talked about this in terms of, you know, we've had eight kids. And so even just statistically, there's going to be a moment of postpartum and postpartum depression and all of the things that come along with that. And she has equated my journey with her journey through that. And that's not to equate it in terms of a moral component. It is though to equate it in terms of why the behavior exists and how to best help that person through that. And the best thing to do for that person is not to beat them up. The best thing to do for that person is to 
really encourage them to figure out their own journey, figure out, you know, what is it that's going on? Be the scientist, be the watcher of your own brain, help the person on the other end of the struggle by not compounding the issue. If you're someone whose spouse is struggling with pornography, it's not because you're not good enough. It's not because you're not skinny enough. It's not because you're that not sexy enough. It's a very important point to make because I think a lot of women especially think, okay, maybe my husband's going to pornography because he doesn't get sex enough or maybe because I'm not pretty enough or I don't, you know, and that gets in their head and then that affects their self-esteem. So it's so good you just said that because I think that's an easy conclusion to make for women. Like it must be me, right? Driving them to that. To that behavior, yeah. And it's interesting because- you're right. You know, it's probably the first conclusion that you make. It's like, well, what have I done to deserve this? But you don't know what the history is with that person or their triggers. You know, maybe they're stressed out at work. And so the pornography pacifies the stress or they're bored or they're lonely, you know, or they're traveling a lot and they're alone in hotels all the time. And they're lonely. And so that's a way for them to not feel lonely or feel like they have intimacy or whatever it is. Right. Right. Well, and I think that women often think that it's dangerous to allow this to exist. Right. We think it's dangerous for us to be empathetic because we have to stamp this out. But I want you to take an example from Jesus Christ's life. The woman brought in adultery. This is a very interesting example to me because you have in this moment a lot of really important factors happening here. First of all, Christ is there in the square and these men bring the woman brought in adultery. And I've always wondered, where's the dude? <laughs> <laughs> like, where's the other guy? And that's not really the point of this particular story, but I've always wondered, why isn't he there as well? And then they start to accuse her and they say, you know, the law of Moses essentially says that we should throw rocks at this lady until she dies. And Christ just ignores them, which in and of itself to me is a grace. He's basically saying, okay, I'm going to let these guys try and play this out in their own heads. I'm going to let these guys try and figure this out on their own because if I tell them the answer right away, they may not be willing to accept it. And then they continue to accuse the woman, right? And Christ says something that I think we all know, right? We've heard this a thousand times in Sunday school, which is, okay, who that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And of course, they're all convicted by their own conscience, right? They're all saying, oh, I'm not perfect either. I shouldn't be worrying about this woman's sins. I should go worry about my own. And they all walk away. What I find interesting about this interaction is that Christ doesn't then say to the woman, I can't believe you did this to me. He doesn't say to the woman, I am going to have to pay for this, and I hope you know that. He doesn't say to the men, you're right, she's a bad person, we need justice. So does the wife need to be more like Christ? <laughs> is that what you're saying? Well, I think we all could, right? But it's important to recognize that he forgives her. He says, where are thine accusers, right? No man hath convicted me. Okay, neither do I, right? Essentially, I forgive you. Go and sin no more. And I know that's hard. I know that's hard to hear, and I know that's hard to actually do. In fact, the last podcast that my wife and I did, that's exactly what we talked about. We talked about that moment where she was so, I apologize, it chokes me up because she was so gracious. She was so Christ-like in that moment for me. I would love for any of your listeners to go listen to that, to our latest episode, which aired Monday. And Listen to how my wife reacted to the last time that I almost went down the rabbit hole and compare that to Christ. And I'm not saying this will be easy. I cannot imagine being a wife 
in this situation because I've never, I've never had that experience, but Christ can. And I want you to recognize that it may not be easy to get to that place, but it is completely doable because of Christ's example and because of the grace of the atonement. So for that wife who's struggling and worried and scared for what it's going to do to her family, what advice would you give to her? I mean, you're kind of saying the compassion, the empathy, you know, try to realize it's not about you. It's really about them and try to help them on their journey. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are some practical things you can do, right? So all of those things, but one is decide exactly what it is that you want out of this. I, so often I hear that the men or the person struggling with pornography is hearing from their spouse, if you don't figure this out, I'm going to leave you. That's almost invariably like the biggest threat that comes out of any of these interactions with spouses. And it is so common. And I want you guys to just kind of take a step back before you say that and recognize that yeah, okay, that's totally an option. You can absolutely leave. That's 100% within your agency to do. What are the consequences of that? And is this threat going to make your husband stop? If you want to be practical about this and you want to succeed and you really do truly want your husband to stop looking at pornography, then I would take a step back from that particular threat and I would say, that's not who I want to be. And I would say, lean into this show your husband that you love him. Because when you do that, he is going to trust you. He's going to be able to trust you not only with this particular problem, but with all of his emotions and all of his vulnerabilities. I said this the other day. I still believe it's true. We come into our marriages showing our very best faces. We show the smiley. We show the happy. We show how good a wife we're going to be or how good a husband we're going to be. But that's not where intimacy lies. Intimacy lies and traction in marriage lies in recognizing that our spouse has faults, some of them very deep and difficult faults to navigate. And if we can just not hold those against them, we will be happier. They will be happier and you'll be able to grow together as a couple. That's true. That mercy. Yeah. So how would you suggest that parents approach a conversation with a child who struggles with pornography, you know, in a way that produces a positive outcome free from shame and guilt? Because so many parents are catching their kids on devices or they're finding things on the internet or they're looking at the history or they start seeing behavioral changes. They see something happening with their kids. You know, how would you suggest parents approach a conversation that can be scary? They don't want to chase them away or get the kids to clam up and then stop trusting them or not say anything. You know, what is some advice you would give for in that? Yeah, I think the first thing that you've got to do is you've got to decide where your head is. Am I going to be upset about this? Am I going to be willing to allow my child to have emotions and have their agency? Or am I going to freak out and yell and be afraid that it's my fault and that this is about me. Because if you're not clear on that before you go, even go into the conversation, you're going to make some pretty significant challenges more difficult. That's a really important component of this as a parent is to be ready and willing to recognize that you have taught them the right thing and it's not your fault. They have agency. And so they get to choose. And then I would say, okay, from there, what's next, right? Well, you need to have a skill to be able to have a conversation with your child without losing your grip, right? You need to be able to say things like, when was the last time that you saw pornography? Not, have you ever seen pornography? When was the last time you masturbated? Not, are you masturbating? 
Because the answer to those second questions are no and never and no, right? Because that's easy. But recognizing that in this day and age, like when I was a kid, it was like, okay, try not to ever see pornography because it's not so ubiquitous. Like I happened upon a pornographic magazine. As I got older, the internet became much more prevalent. And now you have a 100% statistical likelihood of seeing pornography by the time you graduate high school. Like it is going to happen. So the question then becomes, okay, how do I make this conversation a normalized conversation? My wife, my wife takes my son to swim and it's last night. She was telling me that they had a conversation there and back. She was asking him, Hey, do you want to, do you want to talk about this on the podcast? I think you could help so many people. And he's like, no, not really. But it's that open of a conversation to the point where it's not something that we're ashamed of to discuss with everyone. And then I think we need to really kind of dig into, okay, what do we really believe about masturbation and pornography? What is my belief system about that? Not just that it's bad, because that's a really like surface level understanding of the whole situation, but understanding that, yes, people are curious about these things. Yes, that is completely common behavior. Also, the human body is beautiful. Let's not kid ourselves. Pornography has a draw because of its beauty. And so you've got to recognize people are not looking at these things because they're disgusting. They're looking at these things because there is a draw. There's a value to them. So serving my mission in Italy, I saw lots of naked statues, right? Like it was pretty commonplace, right? So in Naples, there's a place called Capo di Monte, and it's literally a garden on top of a mountain. It's really not a mountain. It's like a, it's like a hill, but it's a garden on top of a hill that is not kidding, full of just statue after statue after statue of naked cherubs and naked women and naked men. And it's just like, okay, how is that not pornography and other things are? And we have to recognize there is beauty in the human form that's hardwired, built into us to believe that. And so we've got to be careful about shaming someone for being curious about it because that's not going to help them become the person that they want to be. And so the conversation around our house is, yeah, of, of course, yeah, breasts are beautiful. That's normal. You should totally think that. Now, is that who you want to be? Do you want to be somebody who's like lurking around every corner looking to see if you can find some breasts? No, probably not. So just be aware of that, recognize that and try and decide, okay, who do I want to be? Yeah. And, you know, with parents just being able to say, hey, it's normal to admire the human body. That's normal. And most people are drawn to that. But you are in control of how you react to that impression, you know, but it's not abnormal to think that, you know, so I like that you're kind of like being open, transparent and not, and normalizing it in a lot of ways. So they don't feel like I am such an evil, disgusting, horrible person. No, you're actually pretty normal. And a lot of people kind of feel that way, but how can you control the behavior so it doesn't start affecting you in negative ways, whatever. I mean, what are your thoughts? Would that be some good dialogue? I really like your characterization of normalizing it, not because pornography viewing should be normal, but that the conversation about pornography should be normal, should be common, not just normal, but common, right? We should have those conversations and somewhat regularity with our children. Because the one thing that, so I was sitting in the dentist chair many years ago, talking to my dentist about my children and how I was so frustrated that they had been misbehaving at home. And yet when we go out in public, we could go to dinner and we did frequently at that time 
because we only had four kids at the time. I know that sounds crazy, right? We, we only had four kids, so it was easy to go to dinner with them all. But we would go to dinner, and I kid you not, invariably, someone would stop and say how well-behaved our children had been and how they had been admiring us from across the room the entire evening. And my dentist was like, yeah, but don't you want them to do that in public and then misbehave at home? Because then you get to teach them at home, and it's a softer landing for them. And I have for years now, tried to integrate that into my reality, which is my goal, at least until my children are dead, which hopefully happens after I'm dead, my goal is to teach my children. That's my only job. My job is not to discipline them. My job is not to punish them. My job is not to make sure they're only doing the right things. It's not to watch over their browser histories. It's to teach them. And so if I take that idea, if I take that attitude towards the conversation that I have with my children, I'm much better equipped to help them, they're much more willing to learn. And we're much more likely to get to the place where we all want to be, which is together, again, as a celestial family. And even focusing on progression, right? Everyone has setbacks. Everyone does something stupid they shouldn't do that harms them in some way, right? Physically, spiritually, emotionally. And to say, hey, people have setbacks and that's normal, but how are we going to progress? Because you're powerful. You can progress. Yeah. That positive. That positive push towards progression. And this kind of goes back to the conversation we were having about uh, believing what you want to believe about yourself. Just because you have a setback in the thing that you believe, like I can choose to look at pornography, but I'm not going to today. And then you do end up looking at pornography that day. Or I'm someone who used to have a problem with pornography, but now it no longer bothers me. If those are the things that you choose to believe about yourself, just because you choose in a brief moment to use pornography or view pornography, that doesn't mean that that thing is no longer true. That means that you are just learning how to make it more true. You're learning to progress along the lines that your Heavenly Father wants you to learn. Well, one other thing I wanted to ask you too is, you know, what is a good approach for someone whose friend approaches them about their pornography habit? Because, you know, kids will sometimes turn to their peers and say, oh, gosh, I can't stop looking at this, or this is really hard for me because they're scared to go to their parents and not everyone can go to their parents. Really, some parents are just intolerant of the situation. And I don't know if that's out of fear or whatever it is, but some kids really can't go to family. So what would you say, like a young adult whose friend approaches them, what should a friend say? Yeah, I mean, I think there's three things that I would have anybody say to anyone who's dealing with this. I would say, don't beat yourself up. That's the very first thing I would have anybody say to anyone is don't beat yourself up. This is not something to beat yourself up over. And when you do beat yourself up, that just drives this behavior deeper. And then the second thing that I would say to people is, you know, recognize that this is your opportunity to learn, right? Have your friends help you learn. You know, this is why I'm feeling this way. This is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. Help me understand my own journey here. And I'll be honest with you, you know, feel free to work with someone find a coach. I mean, I, I'd love to have you come and work through my program with me, but there's no single path, right? There's no single right way to get to heaven. It's all, everybody gets to take a journey and they get to learn their own lessons. They get to learn the things that are important to them. And so tell your friends, tell whoever's listening, tell whoever you need to, this is an opportunity for you and your family and your children to learn something about who they want to be and how they can become better disciples of Christ, better versions of themselves, whatever it is that their goal is. Beautifully said. 
That is beautifully said. I'd like to end on that. I think that's powerful and beautifully said. Thank you. But is there anything else you would like to share? I know you're a coach and you help people with this situation. How would someone contact you? How would they find you? Do you have a website or an Instagram or... You can go to zachspafford.com. That's Z-A-C-H-S-P-A-F-F-O-R-D.com. I have a podcast, the Self Mastery Podcast. So you have to put the the in there. Otherwise, you won't find it. And I also have an Instagram handle. If you're into the Instagram, it's zachspafford.selfmasterycoach. So any of those are places you can find me. I'd love to work with anybody who needs my help. This is, to me, this is an important work. And it's interesting because I've often said to my friends, you know, every time I have been given an opportunity to go further in this work. The Lord has made the path clear and he's never made it easy, but he's absolutely made it doable. And I think that's true of anybody who's trying to overcome any unwanted habit in their life. The path is doable. It is clear. It's available to you. It's not going to be easy, but it's there in front of you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time today to share these insights with us. It was powerful. Thank you, Zach. Absolutely. You're welcome. I'm happy to do it. And I want to thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. We encourage you to share this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Simply click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review. We read all your comments and it really helps us to grow. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter by searching podcast What Now. We never say goodbye. We say what now. Find out by tuning into our next podcast. This has been a What Now podcast production.